Welcome to the latest episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. Today's topic has actually been requested quite a few times for us to talk about GraphQL. So I'm excited that we have Shruti to help us really dive deep into the topic. So Shruti's joining us to talk with us about GraphQL. Shruti, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and obviously, what is your favorite happy hour beverage? Hi, everyone. I'm Shruti Kapoor. I'm a senior software engineer at PayPal. Um, I love building JavaScript applications uh, using React, um, GraphQL. My favorite happy hour drink is Sazerac. Nice, which we should be drinking tonight, but I was lazy and didn't get absinthe. And then Shruti's like, I have a bunch of it at home. You must drink or make a lot of them at home. Not a lot. <laughs> I don't want to admit it. I drank it all already. No, yeah. <laughs> Let's go around the table and give introduction of today's panelists. Stacy, you want to start it off? Sure. I'm Stacy London. I'm a senior front-end engineer at Atlassian. Jem Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. Uh, Augustus Yoon, software engineer at Twitch. And welcome back, Jem. You've been Thank missed you. a little bit. Where have you been? Something, something, create a new human, something. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that's, that's pretty easy. Though. It's really easy. <laughs> I don't even know why I need three months paternity leave. <laughs> All right. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we love to choose our keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. And what did we decide today's keyword is? Rest. 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 So if we say the word rest, which I know we will, we will all take a drink. All right. Well, let's jump in. Before we really dive in, I'm curious. Like, I really want to hear what is GraphQL? It's a query language, right? That's true. I've heard that. It's an alternative to... To our nice keyword. To rest. 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 Oh, cheers. cheers. I love how we're all smiling. For that. Yeah, so it's essentially a way of kind of talking to your API, like a query language for your API. So um, one of the cool things about GraphQL is that it gives the clients the power to ask for what they need instead of putting that responsibility on kind of the API or the backend developer who kind of gives you like this big JSON of data and you kind of have to like work with it. Um, so with GraphQL, you get the power to ask for exactly what you need and just that and nothing more. Created by Facebook. I actually had to look this up, but it was created in 2012, which mm -hmm. feels like a really long time yeah. ago. It couldn't have been 2012. That seems like, no. They were hiding it for a Eight long years time. ago? No. No. So it was developed internally by Facebook in 2012 before being publicly released in 2015. Okay. Mm. So okay. Dev. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow. Wow, they hid it for three years. That's crazy. So it was developed by Facebook <laughs> in 2012, but not publicly released. Uh, that is interesting. Hmm. I looked up the date, and then as I said, I'm like, wait a second, that's bullshit. <laughs> Stuff's older than you think. Like, all of the, like, hot new startups, you're like, wow, that's so hot. It's probably been around, like, 10, 20 years now yeah. at this point. So, I don't know if I want to ask this just to avoid our keyword, but I'm going to ask it anyways. We said it's an alternative to REST. What's the difference between a REST API and GraphQL? And we can also cheers a couple times for me saying it, but uh, <laughs> cheers. Cheers. You know, when I think of GraphQL, I think of this, like for a really long time, I didn't know what GraphQL did. I think of this picture where there's uh, R-E-S-T endpoint, <laughs> and it has a picture, it has a URL API slash burger, and it shows a picture of a burger, and then it shows you a GraphQL query, and it's burger, and then lettuce tomato and or whatever and it just shows only the pieces that it takes so i think like one of the huge selling points of graphql is being able to pick 
what you want. Um, it really prevents this like kind of waterfall request model that REST has. <laughs> and you're right. With those calls, you're getting a response that's typically a, a JSON blob that you then have to loop through and or, yeah. or try and find what you actually want out of it yes. versus GraphQL. You're just asking for exactly what you want. Uh, so you're not having that whole large JSON blob being returned back to you. Yep. Yeah, it prevents like overfetching of data when you really don't need it. And I think one of the main reasons is because with GraphQL, you have one endpoint, so you have slash GraphQL, um, and that is the endpoint you talk to. Whereas with REST, you have, let's say you have a library app, so you'll have slash authors, and then you get a list of author, and then maybe you want to fetch a list of their resources or the list of the books that they've written, then you'll have a slash book endpoint, so then you go talk to that book endpoint. So with REST, <laughs> there's a bunch of resources, bunch of endpoints that you keep going and talking to, whereas with GraphQL, you only have one endpoint, so you get all the data you need from just one endpoint. There can be multiple endpoints that GraphQL is talking to, but you only have to worry about exactly. one, which is just the brilliant thing. Yeah. I feel like every time everyone keeps saying REST, <laughs> I feel like it's like a respect song, like REST. <laughs> we need to make our own song now. <laughs> Coming soon. I, I think the but like conceptually the idea is good. Like not necessarily GraphQL, but like the idea of just getting the data you need is something we don't think about as web developers. Because right. REST honestly is easier. You're like, I need some data and I think it's in this payload somewhere. So let me just grab it and I'll do all the work on my side. So it's it's just easier to just like clobber this data. And we never look at that as far as performance goes because we're always like, my TTR is low, my TTI is fast, like my payload, it's or my page loads really quickly, but nobody thinks like the next 20 interactions that the client needs to do and pulling in like megabytes and megabytes of data just for like maybe a little bit of text. Like we never think past that point. Yeah, and that's the, why the I, memory footprint of that client exactly. like storing yeah. all that data that we you don't We never need. look at that stuff. Oh, you just cache it. It's not a big deal. What you yeah, it's, easy. <laughs> it, it, it's like really easy for us to do and it's easier for us to manipulate a JSON blob. But like parsing JSON is a synchronous event and I think we all forget that. So like it just slows down your client every single time. So something like just being more deliberate in your uh, API choices is like a much more thoughtful approach to web development, which is the way we should go. And also it puts a lot of heavy lifting on the client side because now you're sending this huge JSON data blob. And now the client either throws that away or puts it in Redux. Um, and there's overhead of that as well with the additional JavaScript that's shipped to the client. And if that payload changes at all, even the slightest, you have to adjust all your client code to adjust for that. The nodding in the head, we've all done that before. Yes. Like, ah, oh, they changed the API, all right. Yeah, but we could go back to SOAP. Yeah. Let's not talk about SOAP, <laughs> Kids don't know about soap. XSLT no. and soap. Oh, man. When our nice rest calls came along, I was pretty Cheers. excited. I was so excited. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. So I think we've touched a little bit on some of the benefits. Like it's already been highlighted a few times. Performance, being able to make a single request and get exactly what you want. But I'm curious to hear from all of you, like what are some of the benefits that you would want to be leveraging GraphQL in, in your companies or even in projects that you're working on? I think some like sometimes if you're a team that's maybe working on like a specific you're, not, you're maybe not working on like an entire page or an entire product and you're doing kind of component level stuff. I think it's really nice to be able to scope that data really specifically to that component and not, yeah, overget data. And I think that could possibly make the way that you do development at your company um, more distributed and easy. Yeah, one of the cool things that I also think of GraphQL is that as a backend engineer, if I want to upgrade my API and add more fields, I can just keep it adding to the same endpoint. And on the other hand as well, if I want to de deprecate a field, I 
because there is every field is attached to a resolver. I know if that field is being used. So instead of just like completely blindly removing a field, I know if that field is being used. So I have instrumentation behind it. So that's really powerful as a backend engineer. Oh, Makes that's sense. huge. Yeah. That's a big difference. Yeah. And and what exactly is a resolver? So resolver is basically a function just like in REST, we have uh, resource implementation. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so just like in REST, we have resource implementations in GraphQL. Those functions are called resolvers. And resolvers are basically just JavaScript functions or whatever library you're implementing it that define what data you need to send back. So those are the functions that will be talking to the database or for, uh, underlying APIs that you need to talk to. Do the, the server implementations give you like expose that data to you in an easy way so you know like yes these are being consumed or do you have to build something on top of that to know like yes all these pieces of data are definitely being used by consumers oh like from resolver level yeah 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 so there's multiple ways you can do that apollo uh, has tools that actually give you the resolver and and um this instrumentation for free but then if you don't want to use apollo you can also build that in-house um, so you can add instrumentation. It's just a function, right? So you can add instrumentation in-house based on whatever libraries you're using oh, at your cool. company. So, sorry, what is Apollo? Apollo is a uh, library that implements GraphQL on the client side and the server side. Uh, Apollo has this client, Apollo Client, which makes using GraphQL super easy, building a server pretty easy. They also have this amazing resource for GraphQL on how to get started. It's a great uh, tutorial definitely check it out i like the the refactoring benefit i think we like touched on it but the fact that you know what's being used rather than with a typical api not graphql or the like <laughs> <laughs> you like you we're usually just like clobbing data so it's like give me i'll use movies as examples because like netflix but like i'm like give me all the movies in a certain age we're like cool we'll give you all the movies of all time and like it's up to us as on the client side to kind of resolve that out and pull out the data we need. But as a backend engineer, you're like, oh, this API is being hit a bunch. I can't edit it anyway because I don't know what the, all the clients are using. And at scale, like that's a big problem. At a small company, you kind of know what they're doing. But when you have like you're part of a team that's serving like hundreds of UI developers, you can't refactor anything because you don't know what they're using. So like you just end up with like legacy code and legacy code and legacy code and V1 and V2 and V3, et cetera. But I like that in GraphQL. You don't have to do that anymore. You know it's being used explicitly. That is actually really handy. When I think about it, even on a small team, it's like good to know that because it's just once you've got it there, it becomes that much easier to migrate to something else or or to update the client or update something on the server and just not have to worry as much. I was curious to ask you if you do you think GraphQL is better for like internal APIs or external ones too? Yeah, that's a great question. So it kind of depends on what your client needs, to be honest. So let's say, for example, if you are building an application that talks to the clients and within your application itself, you're talking to like five different APIs, you might want to only surface one API. Um, so in that case, GraphQL is perfect because you filter out the data that you need and then you surface it up to the client. That's for external use. But for internal use, let's say you have, again, using it as an orchestration layer. But let's say you have an example where you're building an API and that only serves one client internally. You're building a tool for that. And the data that you're building up in this API is exactly the data that your client is going to use. So there's a one-to-one -one connection. Then you're not really like using GraphQL. There's no leverage point there. So in that case, REST would be a better alternative. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So in that scenario, if you've implemented GraphQL, 
on your API, I'm an, I'm an external engineer trying to work with it on my client-side JavaScript. Do I need to know GraphQL now to interact with this API? Yeah, that's a good point. So if you're using a GraphQL um, API on the server side, you would need to talk to it in a GraphQL way because it's a query language for API, right? So now you have a GraphQL API, so you need to talk to it using GraphQL. One of the good things is that you don't need a specific client, so you can just do a curl command because it's just an API. So you can just do HTTP get to get the data back. So that's handy. That is actually handy. And you're still getting exactly what exactly. you want at that point. Exactly. So you can really build your own client if you need. Yeah, there's this awesome thing called GraphQL Playground where yeah. you could just like put the endpoint of where your GQL is hosted and kind of, and literally how you would write the query in your code. Like you could just, it, it's, a cl- it's literally a client. It's very similar to what Postman is. Uh, for R E S T. Isn't another benefit of GraphQL uh, caching? So once you've already made a request, you don't have to make that request again if the data is already in the store. Well, I don't know that it's you might make the request, but or, and I could be wrong. Someone please correct me if I'm wrong. Is that you would still maybe make the request, but GraphQL the library is smart enough to know that it doesn't have to make a request to the endpoint at that point. Yeah, so that's a really good point. So GraphQL actually does not implement caching by itself. There's libraries like Apollo who do caching for you. GraphQL is a specification, so it does not do caching for you. But having said that, you can implement your own caching mechanism on the resolver layer, on the GraphQL layer where you can do caching. Um, But also, um, if you're doing a GraphQL mutation, which is a post, so by definition, it's an HTTP post, it doesn't cache. So it throws away that data for you. Okay, so GraphQL, I'm sold. Like, let's let's ship it. It's great. There's no trade-offs, right? Ah. <laughs> so what what are some drawbacks or disadvantages to GraphQL? I think the biggest draft, uh, disadvantage that I see is that a lot of things are still being worked upon. So, for example, authentication is something that you have to think about on its, on your own. There are best practices on how to do that. So typically it's recommended that your business logic handle authentication authorization for you. So that's one big disadvantage. The one that I faced in my personal experience was error handling. So with GraphQL, everything comes back as a 200. So if you are, let's say you're building a form and you need to know what field is throwing the form error or like what validation error is being thrown, or let's say, um, what are the other different types of errors? 500, 422. So if you need to differentiate between those, so let's say you have a REST API at the, at, uh, underneath, but your GraphQL is throwing 200. So your GraphQL is actually absorbing 400s and 500s. So as a client, you don't know what error you're getting until you actually like look into your error object and then do more introspection. So there you, there you have to build some sort of logic to understand like what data is being coming back, whether you have a success or what kind of error you have. Do people often build like intermediary layers to say like, intercept all requests and check for that error object or is, is there like people build abstractions on that or so do they usually do you'll get like time? errors populated if you are getting an error mm-hmm. and then but that error has a 200 status code right so you don't know so usually people will build libraries to kind of like uh, look into the errors object and throw relevant errors gotcha okay i guess another drawback would be it's more complex than rest like your newbie web developer understands rest it's I think I, I'm trying to stop saying like things are straightforward because like what's straightforward to me is not necessarily straightforward. I think that's really like no, but it's maybe it's just that that's also typically what we've used for a long time. 
Yeah. You know, it's like maybe soap was straightforward at some point. <laughs> <laughs> no, never. No. no one said that ever. No. Uh, Nobody. But... <laughs> I suppose like what you're saying, like where Rust was built on the the fundamental pieces of the HTTP protocol. Yeah, Jim said it like twice browser. Five, Five times. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> got a few drinks there. A 500, that's a, that's a, you know, these are defined status codes that have meaning. And so if you abstract away from that, then you have to kind of know a little bit more about the web and why it works the way it does and to make your own sort of implementation of that. Well, it works understanding. It's not just like, give me all the data and then I'll parse it on my side and like screw the back end, whatever. Like, it's more work and you have to probably, I would imagine you have to coordinate more with your back end teams, which, you know, engineers, we don't like talking to other people. It's, <laughs> it's a hard job. Yeah, usually the first thing you do is like come up with a contract, which is called the schema, and then that involves a lot of collaboration. Yep. And then you kind of, you can work independently after that. But schema is sort of like a contract that you establish in the beginning. Yeah, like at Twitch, uh, this is a huge thing where if you want to introduce like new GraphQL fields or you want to introduce new resolvers to a new like service, like you have to talk to the GraphQL team and you have to be very conscious of how you design the schema. And the schema is like absolutely huge. Like the one we have in Twitch is like absolutely insane. <laughs> like, <laughs> So do they have like, helpful rules for that yeah they have yeah they have tons of like good documentation they have like a whole team dedicated to managing this schema and actually like it was funny i had to add something to this schema and like immediately there's like tons of questions of like how is this how is this being used what's the expected tps that's expected what calls are like what uh clients are calling this gql field etc cetera, etc cetera. there's there's a lot of process and i ultimately i think it is for the best, but is a lot of overhead you have to go through. TPS, like TPS reports from... <laughs> I was thinking Twitch's per second. Office. Right? <laughs> I think, I think throughput, throughput per second. Throughput per second. I like the TPS report, though. <laughs> yeah. 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 I understood that reference. And for those who don't, please go watch Office, Office, Space. Space. Office Space. I think that's a good point because um, a lot of teams have to deal with that kind of like conflict, uh, even like if there's a one big schema. So if you're pushing user field and another team has already pushed user field, how do you deal with that conflict? That's a big challenge as well. I've seen, I guess, some sort of like that level of rigor on REST endpoints too, <laughs> though, where you can't just like add, you know, whatever you yeah, want. It still true. has to go through like... Either, you know, maybe a principal engineer has to take a look at it or somebody is kind of vetting it in some way. So I don't know if it's worse or better or if it's about the same, like depending on the, the company that you work at and what kind of rigor they put into their API development. One trade-off I had heard from the backend or one of the backend teams that I had talked to with kind of pushing back against it was, oh, you know, front ends, front end devs are going to write, you know, some crazy query and it's going to bring down our servers because it's like, you know, they don't understand the, the implications of the, the query that they're writing. Um, and I think there is an answer to that, but I'd be curious if you've heard that kind of argument. Yeah, I've actually never heard that. I'm surprised how that's going to work because like, they can only execute whatever you let them execute. Mm -hmm. I wonder right? if it's like when it's in front of existing REST <laughs> APIs. <laughs> if it's in front of those, like where you're not actually swapping the backend, and maybe somehow the way that you front it with GraphQL ends up like calling a bunch of different REST APIs. Oh, because you can you can call as many as much data may, as you want. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if that's really a, a valid argument based on you know kind of what you've seen. 
I, I have some strong opinions. I want to say I totally disagree with that. And, and so for some context, Evernote was trying to move to GraphQL um, and then coming to Twitch, which is like very, very embedded into GraphQL. I, I think working in GraphQL, it has like made me a better engineer and made me more thoughtful of things. Like I'll give you a really good example. So I was shipping an A-B testing experiment and uh, someone called out that, hey, you know, um, you're exposing this new uh, uh, GQL field endpoint that or you need this data for this special experiment you're doing. You don't actually need to be requesting this data all the time when you're in this variant. That actually is probably going to affect your variant, right? Because you're requesting more data. It's probably going to like slow down the variant. And so in GraphQL, there's this awesome thing called GraphQL directives. So you can just set like a Boolean. It's like literally like you have the query and you just put an at if and you pass in a Boolean field. And I just pass in like what if I'm in the variant. And now GraphQL just probably it's probably not auto magic. I'm sure there's like some revolver layer that handles this, but uh, it, it just automatically knows not to request that information now. Unless that variant is uh, true. Unless you're in that variant. Exactly. Oh. So I feel it makes you more mindful. Like as someone who started as front end, I think you, it makes you more mindful of those kind of things. That's cool. And that goes back to being probably a benefit in that scenario is just being a little more aware and knowing exactly yeah. what's going on with your systems. More complicated, though. Yes, it, it is. It is a little it is a handful. Onboarding was a little like, oh, what is this? Uh. <laughs> how do you onboard and like, how do you get ramped up as, as someone who's new to GraphQL? Like, what are some is there good tools or are there good articles or like, how do you best get ramped up on GraphQL? I think in our team, the first thing that we give people is graphical tool, which is kind of like an interactive way of firing and mutation. So we have an endpoint and they can just fire a mutation, fire a query and get the data back so they can look at the data. And this is really also helpful for front-end engineers who want to go and work on that data. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed when I was starting out was uh, a Udemy course um, by Steven Greider. And it is a course that is built with React. So it was really helpful because I was already in that frame of mind and building GraphQL with React was really helpful. It, I think, uses Apollo server and client or maybe Express GraphQL server. So that was really cool. Uh, I think one of one, another resource is Prisma, which is kind of like this build. I think it's called How to, how to GraphQL. Ooh, I know this. How to GraphQL. Let me look it up. I can attest to this. Yeah, howtographql.com. And it's kind of like this quiz-based approach of understanding GraphQL and how it is different from REST. That was really helpful for me. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> I feel like we've been spelling it out so much. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Even learning from your back-end counterparts as being a front-end engineer is sometimes just like those conversations can really be helpful to truly understand the implementation and how it differs. Typically, people have migrated to it, so I'm just making that assumption, but that understand what's the difference is I feel like even just wrapping your head around that and just like talking through with the backend engineers has been really helpful as well. Probably like part of a more meta discussion, but we're all senior engineers in the room. Like we're now seeing the evolution from the wild, wild west of soap and then rest where you can kind of do whatever you want. And now a more thoughtful approach, like much more so our CS, like people with CS degrees or people like taking any coursework at all, like that deliberate approach where you're like, ah, my professor's so slow and he writes all these diagrams and then we build it and like, let's just build it now. But we're moving away from that to be more deliberate and more thoughtful, like, because we're doing real engineering and you have to have conversations with people and have like, I haven't heard the word schema since like college. No. <laughs> I can't put it that way. But, but you hear it so much more. You're right. Yeah. Now we're dealing with it. Maybe I've heard it a little bit sometimes for without stuff, yeah. for databases and everything, but 
yeah, you're right. Now this has become, no, we're back to calling that out. It's, it's like really interesting to watch from like stepping back and like seeing how we're as a, as a group of people, like as web developers were evolving and like being more CS focused and being like more deliberate in our approaches rather than the old days of whatever, whatever but, goes. I, I mean, if you think, okay, like thinking back to an old website, let's look 20 years ago, an old website definitely had JavaScript. It was like a drop down menu or crazy animation that probably shouldn't have been there but like there weren't a lot of interactions that needed to happen the now it's becoming more sophisticated and we we care we're using it more and more and more and so that's where those principles probably have to come into place is for scalability but it's and it's interesting we've had this discussion before about like what is a web engineer like what is a ui engineer but you have someone like take shruti or uh, augustus GraphQL experts, that's very different from being CSS experts, but we're all web developers and they're just like very different problems to think about. And I, I, I wonder where the industry is going to go in the future as we think like UX and accessibility is very different from like being an expert at like how to interface with backends and things like that. But we're all web developers, which is, I don't know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense now, 2020. It's blurring. It's, it's blurring a lot. It's like web engineering. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but like I, I just, you know, since coming out here in the last three years, started working with like Redux and all these things. And you're talking schemas using, you know, normalizer and denormalizing and, and doing entities and all this stuff. And I'm like, am I a database admin now? <laughs> I feel like I'm a database admin in, in the browser. And I'm like, oh, th- those things come in handy. I did them a really long time ago and they're coming back. Wait till you write a GraphQL resolver. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a fun challenge. <laughs> so I'm sold. I want to convince my team that this is the greatest thing in the world and we should implement GraphQL tomorrow. This applies to probably many, many technologies. We've all been there. We're like, yes, this is so cool. How do I convince my team? I would start with showing them graphical. So I don't have too much experience in this, but I did hear a common migration strategy for people who are typically on just say it, rest, Cheers. On rest endpoints. <laughs> They're typically on that. You can wrap GraphQL on top of that. Uh, I don't know too much about it, but it's been a common migration strategy a lot of people I've heard used. Um, so that's something. I mean, this doesn't go into selling. This is assuming you've already sold them that GraphQL is No, amazing, no, but, but, I, how but that could be a it. selling yeah. point, though, yes, is that you exactly. don't have to stop all work and yep. just do this. You can do it a little bit piecemeal and get to that point i mean that was always a selling point to me for react is that you don't have to ship your entire application that might be a one approach you could do that <laughs> but you don't necessarily have to do it. you can start to sprinkle it in and i think that is actually a very good selling point and can be very helpful yeah a lot of companies implement graphql as an orchestration there just like you mentioned so they let's say you have like five different apis and then you build like a graphql layer on top of it talks to these five different APIs. Now, these five different APIs are probably talking to other like two or three different APIs. So there's like a bunch of this downstream API. And towards the end, when you have this GraphQL endpoint, you are actually like only talking to the data that you need. So you can show your backend engineers that you're sending me this data, but I'm only surfacing this data. So let's talk about converting your API into GraphQL API. So you are in fact consuming less data and surfacing less data. Here's another selling point. And uh, it was actually uh, Brian Holt, RIP. No, he's still, he's still alive. He's, he's, just he's alive. still alive. I, I just haven't seen him for so long. He's dead to me. No. Uh, I think Brian Holt said it, but it was actually at React Rally when I first met Ryan Burgess and Brian. But he was giving a presentation on Falcor, which is 
same concept, different approach to it. But conceptually, they're the same idea of like just getting data that you want. How they're implemented is like wildly different. But the idea holds. And if you're trying to sell it to your team, you just feel like Facebook and Netflix, both two companies didn't talk to each other, came up with the same idea. And like, so there's something to it uh, at scale of, uh, of accessing data in this way. And that's a strong selling point for me if I was at a smaller company. It's like the idea is still good. I wonder too, if like a way to sell it, and this is more of like a reactionary instead of like proactive, but if you're at a point where your app is like, you're running into like memory problems or limits, you're like storing a ton of data. You, you've built this app out for a long time and suddenly you're like, oh, we keep, <laughs> we keep hitting memory limits uh, and it's hard to understand where all this data is being used. We don't even know if it's all being used. Um, that might be a way to say like, oh, let, maybe we can switch to something that lets us be more selective about the data and maybe run like some, I don't know, figure out somehow to do an inventory to on here's all the data that's in our like local data store in the browser. Are we actually even using all of that? If it's just extra data that is not being used, that might be a way to like mitigate performance problems. And that's a way people like people like when you say like, I'm going to fix a performance problem and make things faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a great insight. I never even thought of that. Yeah. We care about performance. Fixing the memory a, footprint. Yeah. In GraphQL. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I kind of want to piggyback on that, on that. My viewpoint is also kind of reactionary, but just seeing like the benefits you can get out of having a fully fledged web app that integrates very well with GraphQL. It's, it's honestly magical. Like I think one of the things that would like blew my mind when coming to Twitch is they actually have error reporting on the component level. Of let's say for example a component is getting a bunch of errors uh, because some graphql endpoint is getting hit we can like we know about like which component is literally doing that because we use the higher order components that apollo gives us or maybe we made our own higher compo order components where that when that component re-renders it will make a re-request to graphql so we like know that in our logs oh that is really cool yeah. so you're you're catching things like alerting on that essentially yes. yeah we get like monitoring and errors of like not just like what graphql field is getting this is doing this but also like what component that is like making that request is doing that too so it's like really really powerful so it can catch like stuff like oh this component's like over rendering etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. I think another selling point is like if you're a team that ships out um, data pretty frequently to your endpoints. So let's say you have a V1 and then you're shipping out V2 and V3, you quickly end up in a point where you're like V16. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Really? <laughs> so with GraphQL, you have one endpoint, so it's really good for teams that ship pretty fast or need to get rid of uh, fields pretty fast. So deprecation and adding to your API becomes very easy with GraphQL. That's huge. Honestly, that, that huge. in itself, that problem, like I laugh because I'm like, yeah, that is a huge problem. And it takes a lot of coordination. Well, which version are you talking to? That becomes a huge tax, yeah. especially on large uh, applications so that that's a huge selling point how do you sell it to the back end team i feel like it's easier to sell it to the front end group because they're all like yeah of course i just want this time this amount of data that i i need for this component but i found it it's it's been more difficult to try and sell it to the back end engineers is there tips on like i think honestly i would show them the instrumentation capabilities that graphql brings um like Knowing what data is being used by how many clients is so powerful. That has been our biggest selling point for backend engineers and, and the ability to 
ship as much data as you want with without having to version your API has worked really well for us at PayPal. Yep, those are huge. Yeah. So with GraphQL, you also get type system for free. Yes, so basically, like let's say you are implementing like a form, mm -hmm. right? And you have uh, you have a field which is which is supposed to be a number field, but people can enter whatever they want because it's a field. Right. So with GraphQL, you get that for free. So if you specify a string, they can only send in strings. So as a front end developer, as a back end engineer, you don't have to do the validation on the data that you're giving back. So GraphQL will do it for you for free. GraphQL plays extremely well with TypeScript or stuff like there's like how I mentioned this gigantic schema file for us. Like we have a, one that kind of auto generates that creates all the TypeScript types. Um, but it's, what ends up happening is it gets really massive and there's if you actually dig into this, there's tons of nulls because every little field you can optionally request. Yeah. So it's just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, but that's a benefit that it works really well with implementing TypeScript, which like more and more front ends are doing. Mm -hmm. And so that just becomes a lot easier that you're like, yeah, I have a strict type that's coming back from GraphQL. So that is a nice little benefit too. All right. Well, in each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we'd like to uh, share picks with our listeners, things that we've enjoyed and hopefully that you will all enjoy as well. Let's go around the table and share today's picks. Stacy, you want to start it off? Sure. I don't have any fun GraphQL picks, but I have my very standard music picks. Everyone enjoys those so much. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, first one is this one's very funny um, I think the name of this song and I think the name of the artist is Mineria by Erased and that's a gross sounding uh, name sounds like a disease uh, but it's a it's a tract from uh, Erased Tapes which is a music label that I really like this song and title was in what I think basically there was symbols which I translated uh, <laughs> as Morse code. So it was actually quite difficult to even figure out. Like, I still don't know who the artist is. So if anybody That's listening so cool. can figure out like who the artist actually is. Please tweet, tweet us. It, tweet us. Yeah. That would be awesome. Uh, it's a really great track. Very uh, electronic as always. Um, the next one is called Song for the Passing by Shelf Nunny. It's a new, they just released a new album. So that's one of the new tracks from that. Um, and that, yeah, the whole album's excellent if you want to listen to that while you code. Nice. Jim, it's been a while. I hope to hear some uh, Valley Silicon. <laughs> uh, I've got one. I've got one. Uh, let's see. My first pick is there's a group. I think they're based in Brooklyn. They're just called the Mischief Crew, and they just do random stuff. And random, I mean, uh, today they just released something that lets you stream on HBO, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime and I think a bunch of other services. And it just said like, check it out. You can't pick any channels, but they're like, check it out before they take it down. And they just like do random stuff like this. For Christmas, they released like a toaster bath bomb, which I guess is kind of funny. It's like, <laughs> it's a bath bomb in the shape of a toaster and I bought it. It's, like, <laughs> it's pretty fun. How much does that cost you? It's like $30. Oh, oh man, that's that's that, that might be huge. up there in the Valley you know Silicon. No, very expensive. 10, Always seven? too much. Yeah, they're like for a little ball. It's yeah. like All right. $8. Okay. So it, it, it's just funny. It that like is pretty cool, though. I would pay that for that. So what they did was they created a, and this like highlights their kind of insanity. They created a uh, gener generative uh, adversarial network to create foot pictures. So that if you text them, they will send you a random computer generated foot picture. I'll give you. <laughs> I'll hold up an example. I know this is great podcasting. Um, <laughs> this, see there. 
They just like if you text a number, <laughs> they will send you feet pictures that aren't real. They're just created by computers. Oh, there's what? no point to this. That's there, not real. No, none of these are real. Wow. Oh, weird. But there's absolutely no point to this. Like, to what end create fake foot pictures? I don't know. <laughs> they are. Yeah, it, they look more real than my feet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's called thisfootdoesnotexist.com. That's like, crazy. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. This whole crew is like just really enjoyable to follow. I don't know what their specialty is. Like, clearly they're really good at tech, but they do just a bunch of random stuff. And like, they're just a lot of fun. Like, I love it. It's it's kind of like take street art, graffiti, and and applying it to mischievy things to do online. That's kind of cool. It's exactly I love it. Like yeah, that. yeah. So their last one they sent me was. Um, they send out a package. I didn't get it in time, but like they send you a package and they're like inside it's worth either from something zero to $50,000. But if you open it, you don't get the, you don't get the money. But if you wait a year and you send it back to us, we'll pay you $10,000 or Whoa. something. So, or something like that. Like, but you had to decide then if you wanted to open the package or not, and then they'll pay you like, they're just crazy. It's just, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, they're worth following along, but anyways, that's, that's my first pick. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you find interesting stuff on. <laughs> um, my second pick is uh, by Shruti, uh, Dev Jokes. There is a GitHub repo with um, a bunch of jokes that are specifically aimed at a technical audience. They're nerdy. In any other context, they'd be nerdy, but because, you know, we're all here together, we're not nerds. I, and I think, I mean, we've heard a couple of them, and I would say I can attest to how funny they are. They're great. Can we hear one? Do you have some okay. By chance. I have a question for all of you. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Why couldn't the React component understand the joke? Ooh. Ooh. I'm stumped. I don't know. I'm not She's sure. Louise. I don't know. It didn't get the context. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. I, I think this is a great pick because there's many more that you can definitely get. That was pretty good. That was good. That was good. These are all like real life facepalm. I'm just like, ah, I can't believe I laughed at that. But you do. You do. But don't touch your face right now. Just don't. Yes. Oh, yeah. I almost did. I did. I can't. And for my Valley Silicon pick, I was surfing the web and I saw like, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. And you know, you end up like 50 links deep. Ended up on Indiegogo, and Indiegogo has a site called Production Ready. That is Indiegogo is similar to Kickstarter, where you can fund projects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't really believe in Indiegogo or Kickstarter. I know everybody's gonna send me hate mail and be like, "I got one good product off that," but like, a lot of these are just scams, and they're scams dressed up nicely. So, anyways, Indiegogo has a Production Ready site. Uh, if you go to Indiegogo, just Google Production Ready, you can see all these like ready to go funded projects. Check out the comments on most of them. And they're all like, I never got my products. This thing doesn't work. <laughs> and like, this is Valley Silicon right now. Because like, why do people keep investing in these things that like, they have no backing. They're not backed by Indiegogo. It's just like, if I create a video and a nice product page and a nice tech specs or whatever, people will give you money. And they keep giving people money. And like, that is Valley Silicon in a nutshell. Like these gadgets that you probably don't need. You're not getting them. And you're That's not getting even them. worse. And you like know it's probably like 50-50 a scam. But, and then people get really upset when it's a scam. And I'm like, you kind of knew what you're getting into. <laughs> like, I don't know. Just go on the site, read the comments on the page about like how they haven't got their product in three years. And then like these people shut down and like open up a new thing. Like it's the newest, greatest thing. Anyways, that, that's why it's not even a good rant this time because, like, I just want you to see it for yourself. Uh, oh, wait, let me just pick a random one. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is a real-time Google Translate alternative. 
Wait, let's see. How much did it cost? Why, man? Google Translate works. Google Translate does work. Let's see. Oh, so for $70, you can have a real-time Google Translate clone that instantly translates things for you. Google doesn't know where you are, who you are, what you're doing. It's just fair. (laughs) For $70, what did you think you were going to... Like, this is a very, 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 very hard problem. Yes. Do you think they solved it for $70? No, but like the comments page is just full of angry people who have not got their product. Or doesn't work. I'm like, what did you think was gonna and happen? The, and the person that created is rolling in a oh, Lamborghini. Yeah. They're like, Woo-hoo. and Indiegogo's like, we got our money. Like, we have nothing. We're just the middleman. We have nothing to do with it. Anyways, yes, that's that's my moral on on funding things. Is like, what did you think was gonna happen? Do you remember that potato salad thing? Oh, I do. That, that was worth the potato salad. Was, that was so funny. <laughs> Elaborate. It was like on Kickstarter, right? Yeah. It was a fund me and I'll make you some potato salad. Yeah. And it, it like blew up huge. And he's like, I can't possibly make this much potato salad. <laughs> it became a thing. And- There's this Reddit thread. I, I, I don't know the full context, but for people who don't have context, someone started a Kickstarter that literally was a potato salad. And it said in the description, honestly, it might not even be that good. I'm just trying to make a potato salad. And someone put it on Reddit and it just like went viral. It blew up. And this guy kept adding like perks and benefits like, all right, well, I have like $500. I guess, you know, anyone who comes to this address can have potato salad. All right, I'm adding some bacon to it now. All right, wow, this is is just incredible. I mean, that's the power of the internet, which I love. So good. Ryan, I love you said who's paying for this stuff. Exactly. That is the point of Valley Silicon. That is why why are people still doing this? Yes. Anyways, I'm done now. All right, Augustus, what do you have for us? All right. Oof. Let's see. So uh, my first pick is, it does, it's not specifically this product, but it's just the idea of it. Um, I didn't realize there's these things called USB switch selectors. So we're starting, a lot of people are starting to work more remote now. And one thing that's really annoying is I come home, I have these two monitors that hook up to like my gaming PC. And if I want to like plug in my Mac, I have to re-plug in everything. So this is just a convenient USB switch selector, not very surprisingly. It has four USB drives, you press a button, and you can just make it go to a different computer. So I think it's just very convenient. So if you have, if you want it, it's there. Uh, and then my second pick is a, it's a Go package called Go Replay. Um, and so we don't use this at Twitch per se, but... Um, I guess the context is is if you have microservices and you want to test traffic and load, let's say you have massive amounts of traffic you want to mock, uh, what this package does is it actually uh, records live data that your service gets and then it saves it and you can replay it for testing purposes. So it's pretty, pretty nice. useful. So uh, it was pretty cool. So check it out. Shruti, what do you have for us? Okay, I have four different categories. Ooh, Ooh that's exciting. <laughs> So for the first category, GraphQL, I want to pick a course by Steven Greider, The Complete Developer's Guide. This is the course I was talking about. It's on Udemy. I think it's like $10. Um, pretty helpful. Helped me a lot. Um, the next two are two tools, GraphQL Playground and Graphical, that you can use to play around with the GraphQL API. Uh, it's up and running on the GitHub website, so um, pretty easy to check it out. The second one is a book. It's called Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear by Elizabeth Gilbert. And if you're feeling burnt out or not feeling inspired, this book helped me a lot, so it might help you. The next one is for my girlfriends. It's called Revlon Hot Air Brush. So if you're anybody like me who has a lot of hair, 
and cannot do the blowout but loves blowout. This is super cool. It's basically like a hairdryer mixed with a brush. And it reduces your blowout down to like 20 minutes. Gives you a sick blowout. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what, what is a blowout? I am not fashionable. Blowout is like when you, you blow have, dry your, your hair. to your beard, man. What do you do? <laughs> blow dry is like when you blow dry your hair. Okay. Like you go to a professional salon and you they get your... It's like 70 bucks. So it's more than just hair drying fro, though. It's more like brushing it and drying it's like yeah it's more a little more poofy right yeah okay yeah yeah it's like what i have right now oh nice. <laughs> okay and it's super cheap it's like 56 dollars it's not super cheap but not that bad not not valley silicon not valley silicon. No. <laughs> um and it's helped me a lot like i i am the worst at blow drying but this has helped me a lot and my na- last pick is uh the netflix app show dark oh good pick german show about I don't want to say about what, but amazing show. <sighs> I almost said it too, and I'm like, I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it. You can't really just go watch it. I, yeah. it's, you can't. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. What's the genre? Sci-fi. sci-fi? It, it is kind of sci-fi. Thriller, sci-fi. Sci-fi thriller. If you're not a huge sci-fi fan, I still think it's one of those ones where it is sci-fi, but you you'll still like it. I feel like there's people out there who are, yeah, I'm not a big sci-fi fan, and I would still like this show. It's, it's good. I, I recommend watching with a partner because, like, it's it's in German and it's it's compl- it's a very complex storyline, and it helps to have someone there. You're like, who's that person? Like, oh, yeah, that's yeah, that person. Yeah. At least watch the pilot. Amazing. Yes. Yeah, you know, also really cool is I, I have one of the dark jackets, the, the yellow raincoats. Cool. I love oh, it. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah, it's very specific. Only certain people get it. It says dark, like really tiny on it. It's awesome. (laughs) All right. I have two picks. Not GraphQL related either. One is actually a podcast. (gasps) What? Uh, Yeah, I know. I know. Is it fun and happy hour? I mean, that's a pretty good podcast. (laughs) This one might be better because it's a heist podcast. I mean, come on. Who doesn't love a good heist story, right? (laughs) I mean... This podcast is amazing. I, I just got to call it out. It's two guys in LA that are uh, they're What they're doing is talking about heists that have happened in the past. Like they go like really long years ago that this has happened to five years ago, a couple of years ago. They do their research and they go very deep on the podcast. They also talk about a little segment in, in each episode. They talk about a couple that are in the news that have recently happened. Like one that I just remember hearing was three men doing a armed robbery for stealing 200 and some dollars worth of toilet paper unfortunately because of the coronavirus toilet paper has become a thing and so this this <laughs> podcast is really good they have a lot of good commentary it's it's just really good i i really have enjoyed it i've binge listened to a bunch of them and then my second is a book i listen and read to a few different books on children uh obviously having a kid this one i feel like i'm calling it out because it's a good book that helps you with your life in general it's oh crap i have a toddler (laughs) Um, it's so good in the sense that it helps with understanding how to help manage your time but also to help with your child i've learned so much this is like game changer so i highly recommend it if you have a toddler listen to it but i honestly feel like it even applies some of the tim ferris methodology of 80 20 and the whole like four hour work week so, I mean, maybe if you don't have a child, just go listen to 4-Hour Workweek. It kind of applies too, but such a good book. It's really good. Jem, you're going to hit this point. <laughs> I will be buying you a copy of this book. Deal. <laughs> 
All right. Well, before we end the episode, I want to thank Trudy for joining us. Where can people get in touch with you? Thank you for having me. I, people can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shruti Kapoor 08. Um, also on GitHub with my dad joke repo, Shruti Kapoor 08. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone go check out this dad joke repo. I, f- I was telling her earlier she needs a, a Twitter bot that's like just a Twitter account that is it's just every day we get one of these jokes. Because I, I would definitely follow that account. Maybe someone out there will create that for you. Oh, that'd be great. Please do. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. You can check us out at frontendhappyhour.com. I was going to call it the website. Some people didn't even know we had a website. So we do. Frontendhappyhour.com. And you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple, I don't know, Google Podcasts, whatever it is. And you can also follow us on Twitter at frontendhh. Any last words? I'm going to read a a sticker that Shruti has on her laptop. It says, I heard it on a podcast everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Love it.